Welcome to the Self-Esteem and Confidence Mindset with me, Johnny Pardo. Welcome back to the Self-Esteem and Confidence Mindset with me, Johnny Pardo. So today I've got a guest episode again following the successful previous episodes I've done. Today's guest is Terry. Terry's a friend of mine and we met through personal development, through a group actually called Awaken, which was a spiritual psychology workshop, but I had the opportunity and privilege of meeting many good people through there, such as Terry. Terry is about to start a job at UWE, uh, a, un a university in Bristol, and he's going to be a lecturer there on forensics, which he uh, knows a fair bit about, but he's actually got a story around addiction and quite, quite a story to tell us today. And Terry has managed to turn that around for his life. So today, Terry's gonna to be telling us a little bit about what he felt whilst he was struggling and actually how he overcame it and now how he feels about himself and being free of the addiction. And he actually is looking to help as many people as possible with that. And some of you, you might be listening, thinking I know someone or that might be me. So hopefully Terry can give you some value today. So welcome, Terry. Thank you, Johnny. Thank you for the intro. And uh, you're right, someone out there may be in need of help somewhere. And it wasn't until I heard people speak up about addiction that I was able to kind of confront my own addiction and seek help. So it's, it's important to get that out there. Brilliant. So yeah, it's really good um, getting people aware of that and, and yourself of doing that. So um, before we sort of go into the questions and the conversation day, today, I've obviously introduced you a little bit, but do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself from you and your story a bit? Yeah, of course, of course. That's why we're here, isn't it? Get the story out there. Um, well, what I do is, is I'll start at the beginning and show you how I kind of came into addiction. Mm. As we go through it, you can just ask questions as and when you feel necessary but you know I never set set out to be a drug addict that wasn't my goal that wasn't my destination I didn't dream about that I dreamed of being a footballer yeah or a singer or, a, or an athlete or something like that as little boys do but um an addict definitely wasn't on the cards and then over the years I've kind of really dissected my childhood and looked at things and and thought why why did I end up like that but you know I can and I will in, in a minute I'll tell you about the first time I got high yeah but because as you know the groups we've been in you've already mentioned it I've done some work and I kind of found out where that stuff stems from right and many people in addiction can trace back to some kind of trauma in your childhood yeah and trauma comes also all different levels mm. you know but for me it was as simple as you know I was, I was five years old when I went to my primary school it was the first time I was removed from the safety of my uh, my family my loving family my parents my younger brother you know as you're brought up and nurtured and cherished and molded in love and I went to this uh, this new school and my primary teacher the, the first uh experience outside of my family home and uh unfortunately for me she turned out to be uh, a vile really aggressive overbearing dominant tyrant of a woman um and she kind of ruled that classroom with fear you know i remember i can remember now just as little kids you know we're five you know my daughter's six now i look at her and i just think she's just tiny and i want to protect her you know, and then I think Absolutely. back to when we're five and we're there in that classroom and this teacher is just screaming and smacking stuff and stern face and we're petrified. And she used to kind of single people out, you know, what's eight times four, you know, how do you spell this and such and such. And uh, it used to put me under so much pressure and I was consumed with fear all the time going into that kind of environment and um, 
you know, I kind of, I, I developed a, a, a twitch, like a little tick that I kind of gave myself. And at the time I, I was wetting myself a lot and I used to wear shorts because, you know, it was just this fear. It's the only way I can ex explain it. And my parents kind of knew something was going on because they'd mentioned it, you know, why is he coming? Why has he got the twitch? Why is he in the shorts all the time? You know, and then, and then my turn came. You know, and I was singled out and I was dug out in the classroom and uh, I, I made a mistake and I didn't know what eight times four was and I panicked and uh, she dragged me up to the front of that classroom and uh, she just slapped me. She's just slapping my legs, smacking my bum in front of the whole classroom. And I'm just there as a five-year-old child screaming and crying. You know, and it can be something as simple as that. And what she done in that moment, yeah, she instilled something into me that was run throughout my life up until this point and that was shame yeah at that moment I was consumed with shame Brené Brown explains it the best you know she she says the difference between guilt and shame is guilt is I did something wrong shame is I am wrong guilt is I did something bad shame is I am bad so is that's what I had inside me all the time I am bad, I am wrong because of what happened in that classroom. So that that set me on a path uh, throughout my life that, you know, I, I was riddled with fear, yeah, consumed with shame, hate being shown up in front of groups of people and hate making mistakes. And that was it, you know, and that just made me very awkward as a child. And then I kind of covered that up with... Uh, trying to achieve trying to achieve to to get people to notice me you know but if i if i can like just jump forward to when i was 13 i know that's quite a big jump right so i just want to show the difference that from that fear through a relatively confused childhood but quite a positive one yeah then at the age of 13 i suppose when you kind of come to the age of puberty, all our schools, our middle schools, we all left and we combined into one big school. And at that, that point, I just remember feeling really awkward in my own skin. I never felt entirely comfortable with myself. I was continually looking at other people and trying to compare myself to them and see how I could fit in, uh, see how I could be, be part of, you know. And uh, instead of kind of trying to do things to get respect, uh, not respect, to get noticed. You know, I started to do things for notoriety instead. Yeah. And, and that seemed to kind of fulfill something for me. And it was around that time that I went out with uh, a couple of friends and they was older than me. And they said, you know, should we go for a drink? And I said, yeah. And I've, I've kind of been introduced to alcohol with my, uh, through my parents but this was my first time on my own you know I'd had the old baby sham at Christmas when you're younger as you used to do back in the day but this we went out and we drank Thunderbirds I don't know if you know what Thunderbirds are <laughs> people that do you used to have a red label or a blue label of Thunderbirds and I just remember drinking that just just downing it as quick as I can a litre of that at 13 and I ended up say again at 13 yeah. yeah, and I just, I, I ended up paralytic. I remember I fell down a hole and I smashed all my leg up. So I was limping. We ended up uh, nicking a couple of cars that night and just driving around, you know, driving up to the school and knocking down the goalposts and the tennis courts and stuff like that. And then I woke up the next morning and I had one of those hangovers from hell. You know the ones if you if you move just an inch you're violently ill. Oh yeah. One of those and my head was banging around my friend's house and I've got my head over the toilet and I'm just throwing up and throwing up. If I just moved an inch I'd be throwing up. And I looked up and I could see my friends, older friends, and they're all there kind of like jeering and laughing and egging me on. And I just remember in that moment, I just remember to my thinking to myself. I cannot wait to get drunk again. And from that moment, that kind of set the tone for my whole using because it just, it was about seeking oblivion 
and the consequences meant absolutely nothing. And that's it. That's all I was kind of chasing from that moment on. Okay. No, it sounds, um, you know, that, really appreciate you sharing the, the early, the early years, especially when you're five years old and you're in class and then obviously that jump ahead to 13 and you're, you're drinking. Um, when you were, when you were drinking then, what did you feel like you couldn't wait to start drinking again because of the, the approval you were getting from it, from the other people? Well, it was, alcohol gave me confidence. Okay. It made me comfortable in my own skin. Mm. And it wasn't approval as such. It was notoriety. I got noticed. It was like, oh, Terry will do that. Yes. You know, some of my friends, one of my friends' mums used to say, oh, here comes silly socks. There's a nickname I picked up because I'd always do the stupid thing, you know. I'd always be egged on and jeered on. And when I'd done it, I kind of got that notoriety. I was approval, possibly. Acceptance, definitely became part of something you know but but alcohol only sufficed for so long because everyone else started drinking and everyone else got to that level and then uh, I didn't stand out anymore I kind of blended back into the crowd and started to feel that uncomfortableness again so I needed to kind of seek the next thing that would soothe, soothe the soul Okay, and, and did that lead you? Was that next thing what what led you on to the the drug the drug addiction? Yeah, so they often talk about a progression in drug use, you know, and there's kind of some people believe there's some kind of hierarchy to drugs, but it's not my experience. My experience was I tried a few things, and very very young, the town where I come from. You know, there wasn't much employment. There wasn't much help for addicts. It was quite <clears> a, a mundane existence down there for me. And uh, I just kind of jumped straight on and I just, into heroin at a very, very young age. And but when I first took heroin, it changed everything. You know, it was like a romance with uh, heroin, it soothed everything. You know, the reason people take drugs is to, uh, is to numb a pain. There's an internal pain going on. There's some turmoil, there's some distress, there's some despair, there's something going on, some unrest that we can't, at that time, we don't know how to live with or how to, how to deal with it. You know, when I took heroin, that was it. It, it numbed everything. It quietened everything out. It soothed everything. It's like a pacifier, like a dummy. You take that and you're back in the womb. There's no problems, nothing matters. Just relax, consequences are gone. I didn't need to stand out in a crowd. I didn't need approval. I didn't need significance. I didn't need certainty. I didn't need anything because I felt complete and I felt whole, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And there's, there's a phrase that says, um, people aren't addicted to the drugs themselves. They're addicted for, to running away from reality or their real feelings. So I guess, does, does that resonate with you? Yeah, I've been listening to Gabor Mate and he says, uh, all addiction stems from trauma. Hmm. But he also says that, um, that heroin in itself and alcohol in itself is not addictive. Okay, that's not that's not my experience. I know he's a renowned expert in addiction, but that's not my experience. I was mm. physically addicted to alcohol. I was physically physically addicted to heroin. I was physically addicted to benzodiazepines. I was physically addicted to these drugs. I was also uh, mentally addicted to them. Yeah, but is that the reason I continue to use them? No. The reason I was using drugs in the first place, that's what I need to go back to, is, is because I was trying to, to numb something that previously I didn't know how to deal with. The, the, the shame, as you, you mentioned in, um, in the mm. early years. So going, going back to that, because I was going to ask on that, but I thought um, what you're talking about previously when it led on to the drug addiction was 
quite interesting where we're going with that. But just going back to the when you were five years old, how was I mean, how was the rest of your your school life or childhood you, after that teacher? I mean, were the other teachers better or did, were you stuck with that teacher for a while? No, luckily, that was just she was my first teacher. We had her for a year and then we moved on. Thank God, you know what I mean? But it was enough to scar me. Through the rest of that school, all the teachers I encountered were, were decent teachers. They were there for the students. Um, after leaving that classroom, as a student, I was quite capable. Um, I enjoyed school to a certain degree. Um, I tried my best in there. I'd done what I could. But I remember when I moved up to my middle school, I kind of, I found myself and started getting like into sports, like captain of the football team, uh, you know, used to win a lot on sports day. I was kind of, we had this little like a uh, house, um, house teams and I was like a, like a, like a school prefect thing for that as well. So I was doing well and I, I was, there was a one teacher, his name was Mr. Greenfield. And uh, on parents' evening, he said to my parents, whatever Terry puts his mind to, he can achieve, right? And, that, and my parents told me that later years, but it's always resonated with me because at that moment, when I was in his classroom, that was when I was at my best. And that was just before we moved up to uh, the last school where everything's kind of went wrong, you know? So, so going from that shame after a few years, you know, I managed to semblance some kind of normality and some kind of happiness and some kind of joy within my life, only mm. for it to turn again. So schooling was a positive thing for me after that initial horrifying experience. Yeah. And that, that initial experience, was it, was it something you thought about regularly as you went through school or was it something you'd forgotten until you actually started searching for that, that moment again that you rediscovered that was the trigger? I was, I've been oblivious to it my whole mm. life. I turned eight years clean in September, just gone. Totally uh, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, free from all drugs, all mind-altering substances. Brilliant. It wasn't until I was about seven years clean in recovery that I had that realisation that my whole life was run from shame, run by shame, you know, and I regressed back through my childhood to pinpoint that the actual time and place, you know. And I don't lay all the blame there, you know. I was raised, you know, things happen there. Um, when you become an addict... You know, the consequences are pretty harsh. So you're constantly having the finger pointed at you. You're constantly being ostracised from society. So you're kind of getting this stamp on you all the time that mm. kind of agrees with the shame, that reinforces the shame. Mm. So there was lots of times that shame was reinforced throughout my childhood through friendships, through bullying, through partnerships, through relationships, through whatever it was. It was reinforced over and over and over and over again. And that's why, you know... I need to take these drugs. I need to numb this pain. But I didn't know it was going on at the time. So what kind of uh, things were you, when you weren't on the drugs, um, you mentioned about sometimes you physically felt you needed it, but mentally, what are the kind of things you were saying to yourself or thinking about yourself when you weren't on the drugs? How did you feel about yourself as a person? Well, it was always about the drugs but there was times when I did I managed to kind of get a little clean a little amount of clean time I'd, I'd go through withdrawals cold turkey as it's known and uh, it, it was it was a voice would just come alive in my head and just would not stop speaking you know just every, every situation I was in, it would just, it would belittle, belittle me and bring me down and mm. always comparing against others. And I always put other people on a pedestal and I put me below them, you know? Mm. And when you kind of compare yourself to others and you place yourself lower, you, you kind of come from a place of envy or jealousy and that rapidly turns into resentment. 
And when you're resentful, you're kind of bitter, and you hate the world, and you're just shut off. And it really feeds into that low self-worth and that low self-esteem and that inner voice that just says, I'm not enough, I'm worthless, just a piece of shit. And that's the kind of language that was going on constantly in the background. So, you know, it sounds the reason I didn't stay clean for very long. You know, it was easier to use to kind of quieten the voice up. Mm. Yeah, no, that, that makes total sense. And as we were talking about, sometimes those voices, those harsh voices um, can go away temporarily. But um, obviously it's interesting to get your perspective on the kind of the belittling voice, as you mentioned then. So um, yeah, thanks for sharing that. Um, in terms of what it, what it costs you being on the drugs, what, what kind of things do you feel like it costs you in terms of relationships or like I'm talking, not just romantic, but like family, friends and kind of general jobs. What, what kind of things did it cost you? Well, it, it cost me 20 years of my life. Mm. God, never to get back. Um, it cost me every single job I've ever had. I would either be sacked, not turn up, or just, or just not go in. Mm. Um, it cost me every romantic relationship I've ever been in. Everyone always left me. Um, it cost me near enough all my friendships from school growing up. There's only one or two people that stuck about. Uh, as for family members, there's a few that stuck about, but the majority of people, no, they distanced themselves for, from me because I became, I made myself very isolated. But, you know, I think there was times people would see me and they'd cross the road. They'd get a little bit embarrassed. Oh, here he is. You know what I mean? He's going to ask for a pound again. 20p whatever it is you know it cost me my self-respect my dignity um it just sapped everything from me you know because as i said after that initial thing in the classroom the rest of my schooling i was bright-eyed mm. charismatic energetic loving good morals good principles because i was raised well yeah mm. all that was just sapped from me and taken from me i didn't have much left within my soul really hence you know the futile suicide attempts that, I'd, that would kind of rear their heads every now and then mm. yeah okay no you know thank you for sharing that and definitely when it's interesting what when you were talking about when you're five years old you you see you know it's quite a reasonably happy childhood um up till then before you went to the school um you said in kind of like a nice background the first time away from you know these people you're comfortable with it's it's interesting because sometimes we think hang on how have i you know how have i got low self-esteem in the instance of um our, this sort of podcast or lack of confidence or i got into this addictive or bad behavior i've got a very good you know early childhood i've got a lovely family and the same was with me um i've got a love i've got the amazing wonderful parents and amazing little sister but for me, when I was two and a half and I had a baby brother, sadly, who passed away and my parents had to leave me for a bit. It was a bit like that child at the time was thinking, hang on, what's going on? Have I done something wrong? I'm not lovable. Am I not lovable? Am I not enough? Whilst logically, obviously, as adults now, we'd, we'd know better, but those beliefs. So it's always interesting to sort of hear how different people's beliefs shape. And I think that's really, really given, you know, some people some value. Um, in terms of how behaviors can develop just from early experiences, even if, you know, on the outside, we, we would have had perhaps a nice family life. Mm. Um, traumas can be in, the, in any form, as you mentioned. Well, what happens, Johnny, is drugs take over your life. Mm. You know? And uh, it, it, I became powerless over drugs themselves, you know, and you mm. have this, this massive debate that goes on and people say, oh, it's, it's a choice. They choose to live that way, yeah? Mm. But when my mum is sitting in front of me and she is absolutely broken and sobbing and weeping and pleading for me to tell her what to do, yeah, and I can't muster any words to help her, I can only manipulate that situation to get more money to use drugs. That's not a choice. 
don't choose to put my parents in pain. I was mm. caught up in something that had a power over me I couldn't get out of at that time. You know, the initial choice to use a drug laid with me. When I was caught up in it, it just uh, takes over. But there's like, uh, of all the people that use drugs, you know, you see the addict and we kind of link the addict to drug use, yeah? And the, the general opinion or appearance of the drug addict is the drug addict that sits in the, the shop doorway begging for money or the one that's always in and out of prison or the one that's prostituting himself on the street, yeah? But drug use is more... in it's really it's throughout society but 90 mm. percent of people that take drugs can take drugs okay and can take them successfully they can take them every now and then recreationally and just leave them mm. they may take them for a stint of time may even form a habit and then stop yeah but it's kind of statistics have shown that there's 10 percent of them people that, that that don't have that ability and i believe i fall into that bracket yeah that okay no that's really that's really interesting stats um in that obviously more people <laughs> it, it surprised us i guess some people who we know that actually might take you know drugs occasionally but the fact you know they, that they don't fall into that 10 percent is is why they're kind of it doesn't always appear on the surface but it's you know really useful to hear your perspective and um those, those stats are really interesting as well so Talking about your, your recovery a little bit and, you know, you, you mentioned you've been eight years clean and you didn't get the realisation for the, I think it was seven years into that you mentioned. What, um, how, how did you start becoming clean? What kind of triggered you off uh, for that road to recovery? I was in a treatment centre and I went to a 12-step treatment centre and I got clean and I managed to get like a month or so under my belt. And uh, at that time, my brother was living in France and I thought I'd fix myself. I thought I'd cured myself and everything was good because I thought, you know, physically we recover very quickly. Mentally and emotionally it takes a bit longer. Um, and I thought, right, I'll go over to see him. And I went over there and we have this saying in, uh, in uh, recovery that the first one does the damage. Yeah, one's too many, a thousand is never enough. But uh, I only went, so in, in France, I have something called a demi, which is a half a beer. Mm -hmm. I, had, I thought, I'll have, out of sight, out of mind, I'll have half a beer. And I drank that and I ended up getting absolutely paralytic. I ended up hitting the doctors for a load of benzos, a uh, load of tablets, because I'd lived in France for many years. I know how to kind of manipulate the doctors. Um, and then I don't remember flying back from France. Yeah, I remember walking into my dry house, being accused of using, and in two days I was homeless, begging outside Luton train station to try and raise some money to get drugs. And it was at that point that I realised, right, you're the problem. You are the problem and you can't use drugs anymore. Because then I was using the heroin. I knew it was against the law. Yeah. I knew what I was doing was wrong. And because I was constantly trying to fight off withdrawal symptoms, I thought that's why I continued to use. But it's when I kind of got my head around the fact that you can't drink alcohol either. Every time you drink alcohol, you can't stop. And I, and I kind of got it in that moment. I used for five more years knowing that every time I used, I used against my will. Yeah. And it brought me to a place where I went to my parents' house in France. I was living in France at the time. Mm. And I took myself there and uh, with another promise of getting clean. And, um, and while I was there, I just, I'd come to the end of my tether. And uh, I just remember I tried to take my own life there. I took all the tablets I had and drank a bottle of gin. And when I woke up the next morning, I was just thinking, hey, you can't even do that right. It's just useless. I just thought, right, something has got to change. Something has got to shift. You know, and when I was back in England, I started the process of trying to engage with the, the drug services that have been helping me for years since I was about 18 years old. 
but this time I was using them to get some, not to get another script or to get on a day programme so I stayed out of trouble with the police, but to get me to a goal where I can clean myself up. And uh, they worked with me for over a year and they finally got me down to a treatment centre in Western Supermare, which is where I live now. And uh, that was a process of me uh, beginning to get clean. And what I'd done is I went into another treatment centre and uh, this time I listened. This time I listened a bit that what was going on and I engaged and I worked through some of that stuff. And uh, whilst I was in there, there was some uh, support workers that used to work there and they used to, you know, they'd speak to us as clients and they'd kind of give us a bit of advice or just have a chat with us, um, tell their stories, give their experience. And there was something about these people when they was talking that made me ears prick up and I'd look at them and think they've got something about them. They're telling me stories of things they've done very similar to me. They've been to the places I've been to. They've been to worse places than I've been to, but they're clean. But more importantly than that, they're happy. They had like a glow about them, an energy, and they'd communicate and converse and laugh and be well presented. And it was very attractive. And through conversations, I realised that they went to 12-step fellowship. And that's what I'd done. I'd come out of that treatment centre and I went to a 12-step fellowship. And uh, I kind of found my way in there and managed to kind of get a 12-step programme behind me. And that's been the, the basis of my recovery ever since. Brilliant. Uh, so, um, it's really interesting to hear that, you know, you, you tried you tried once and then it didn't work, but then actually you found something that worked. And perhaps the thing that inspired you was someone with a similar story. And, you know, someone list, listening now might be able to relate to what you're saying. So that's really, really good. And as human beings, we can relate so much to stories. So... No, that, you know, that's great news that you were able to connect with them so much. And, um, and I guess that was, that was the eight years ago, that, that mark. Yeah. 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 It's been, uh, it's transformed my life, Johnny. Mm. Honestly, I can't explain it. I mean, what I've just told you is just snippets of, uh, my drug use. If I can sum it up, I was in internal pain. I used to cry when I was by myself. I used to plead and long for death on a daily basis. I was frightened to walk outside of my front door. It was just existing, 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 day in, day out. It never changed. And I've, I've come to this 12-step uh, fellowship. You know, it was suggested that I get a sponsor. I've got a sponsor. We work through the programmes. I had a look at myself. Remember, I've just done treatment. I've just done six mm. months in another treatment centre. So I've got this stuff where I've just looked at myself. I'm, I'm using the, the 12-step programme to really kind of look at the way we believe in 12-step programme, the disease concept of mm. addiction. And I'm looking at that and what kind of fuels me, you know, where does it stem from? You know, what's rooted into my subconscious you know, and I was able to look at my shortcomings, defects, and transform myself as a from, from a frightened little boy into a man. Yeah, and it's you know, and it's not you know, I went through the steps pretty quickly, but it didn't mean it was all finished. It's been an eight-year process to get me to this point, and in that eight-year process, many, many things have happened. You know, I, I can list you off loads of things that I've done to which shows someone that's got their life together, someone that's moving forward, someone that's got dreams, goals and ambitions again. And how, how do you feel now about yourself? I mean, how, how's, how do you talk to yourself as opposed to when you used to belittle yourself? Well, I try to turn everything into a positive, you know, everything I do into a positive. <clears throat> My fiance will probably say I'm still moany and moody at times, you know, but I don't, you know, it's not, I'm not perfect. I don't seek perfection. But the, the language I tell myself now is, uh, is different to what, what I used to. There was no hope before. Mm. There was no hope at all. And then today there's, there is hope, you know. And it's that, that sent gentle, self-soothing talk, 
you know, that, come on, Terry, you can do this. You've got this. You're capable of doing this. You know, you've, you've proved this time and time again throughout your recovery. You know, I, I have this tendency to approach many things in my life with doubt, fear and worry. But I know where it comes from. And it happens, but I'm able to challenge that with my thinking and do it anyway. Because if I held myself in that place, and you know this, you teach this stuff, yeah, mm. I would always be in that place. Mm. I would never do anything and never achieve anything in my life. I would stay stagnant, yeah, and it would just feed into that shame that I am no good. You know, I am bad. I'm no good. You know, I'm not enough. Yeah, and then I will make that prophecy come true. You know, but today it's totally different. I can give you examples. Do you want examples of how my life's different today? Yeah, that's yeah. Just give a couple. That'd be fantastic. Well, I've re-educated myself. So you know, I got uh, kicked out of school just before our exams for shooting someone with an air rifle, and then I tried to go back into uh, college in Canterbury College and reset my GCSEs. I think I did. I think I scraped a couple of GCSEs together. And, then, and that was the extent of my, my education. Um, and then I've kind of cleaned up. And after a year of being clean, I've gone into uh, college. I've done an access course and I've gone on to do a degree in forensic science and then a master's in advanced forensic analysis at the University of the West of England. And tough stuff. And, uh, that, that's quite tricky stuff. So well done on that. Yeah, yeah. considering it's a... Uh, quite a deep science degree and uh, I wasn't expecting it to be and my science my bi biology and chemistry weren't that great and uh, still isn't top-notch today but you know there's progress been made and then uh, what I've done is I signed up for a PhD as well so currently I'm doing a PhD in uh, bladder cancer and prostate cancer detection we're looking at a non-invasive way to detect it you know mm. because it does involve a lot of poking and prodding uh, with, in places people don't want to be poked and prodded. Mm. So I'm just completing that at the moment, finishing that off. And like I said, um, well, you mentioned at the beginning, I start a job on Monday with the forensic team at UE, University of Western England, the very same lecturers that taught me. And I'll be a forensic lecturer there and I'll be teaching others, you know. And this is within eight years. And that involved that change of mindset you know the fear the worry the doubt was there it's there it's been there the whole way through but i've challenged it I said you can do this and i've continually produced results mm. and every time i produce result it gives me trust in the process you know throughout that that uh that period i, I won a national award for forensic science and uh uh, it was it was given to me, it was uh, presented to me by the Chartered Society of Forensic Sciences. Brian Rankin, the man, you can check him out. He was the one that presented the award to me, and I was told, if you go, if we put you in for this, Terry, you pr you will not win it, yeah, because you didn't get a first, yeah, because academically I was not the most gifted student on my course. And I said, it doesn't matter. You've nominated me for this. That's fantastic. And I went back to that classroom when I was five and, and, and just, you know, up yours. And I went back to that classroom with Mr. Greenfield and thought, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for everything you taught me because it was based on effort. It was the most meritorious student. And the teacher wrote, the lecturer wrote, and we believe uh, uh, merit is uh, judged on effort. And Terry has put in more effort than any other student because they knew my past you know and i was managed to secure it and so you know so there you go there's, there's good evidence of that um i've also managed to i've been in a relationship for it will be eight years this december you know i've never ever held down a relationship for any length of time that was healthy in any sort of way throughout my whole life mm. the first time i managed to kind of live in something that functions healthily you know and uh she's now my fiance who's due to get married this year and that obviously didn't transpire due to uh covid etc yeah. 
So we're putting that off till next year. And we've got a beautiful little girl called Sophia, who, uh, you know, is my duty to raise and look after. You know, eight years ago, I couldn't even look after myself. I, uh, I didn't really wash. All my clothes were dirty. My hair was long. You know, I didn't eat properly. I mean, I share this when I do uh, talks for addiction, you know, I had a cat litter tray full of cat shit and no cat, even the cat had left me. It was just me, just couldn't look after myself, had no electric, had dust sheets up for curtains. And now today I'm put in this position to raise this, this seraphic beauty, you know, to develop her and mould her and try and steer her away from the classrooms that I was in, you know, into the life that's possible and potential for her. That's awesome. And like and like Mr. Greenfield said, Terry can achieve anything he sets he sets his mind to. So he's definitely taken that philosophy forward. So I've also I also tracked him down as well and I've contacted him recently. Oh, did you? Oh, okay. Yeah. And I told him that. I told him my parents said this and I told him my story and a bit of my history and he was really touched and he said thank you ever so much for sharing that with me. And he's kind of been behind me because he's a teacher and he's still teaching today. And I told him I was oh. going for this role as a forensic lecturer. And uh, yeah, he's kind of been behind me and supporting me to kind of go for the role. And I told him, I said, I've got it. I secured the job. He said, well done. That's brilliant. It's great. Those kind of people out there kind of really lift you up in those times. But um, yeah, it was, it, you know, sounds an incredible story. I was going to mix up words and story, Terry. Um, I was just going to say, um, kind of as we we've you covered a lot today, which has really, really been helpful. What would be your say top three tips for someone coming out of drug addiction? The things I found most important myself is uh, take inventory, find a community, and help others. Yeah. Yeah. So that taking inventory is taking is taking personal inventory. Yeah, you're keeping my side of the road clean. I've got to continually look at what I do wrong. I can't change you, Johnny, as a person. Mm. You know, you know it says like we're powerless over people. I don't know if that's the case. You know, if there's someone irritating in my life, I can remove them, but I can't change what you do. Mm. I can only change what I do, which yeah. may change the situation. So I take a personal inventory all day long as I go throughout the day and I look for where I'm being resentful, where I'm being fearful, where I'm being dishonest, where I'm being judgmental, where I'm being opinionated. And I try my best to counteract those defects. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I still get it wrong. I'm still learning. I'm only eight years old. So take inventory. Uh, second one is find a community. You know, finding a community of like-minded people is paramount to my recovery you know mm. there was uh, there's a book out by johan hari called chasing the scream and he talks about the uh, war on drugs and it's, it's a brilliant book he, he describes it excellently but in there he talks about um this this bloke called bruce alexander and he talks about an experiment he does with uh, mice and he's got mice in a cage and he feeds them uh, morphine and they become addicted to the morphine and then what they do is they create a second cage called rat park and it's got everything in there yeah so you've got the mice that was in solitude drinking the morphine and they take them out and put them in this this new cage they give them the option of the morphine or normal water and they tend to go to the water most of the time yeah you'll have to look at the 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 experiment itself but basically what it's saying is saying the community itself can help drug addiction mm. you know and i truly believe that i've tried to do it myself many times and i've relapsed and relapsed and relapsed and i see it so often you know so take inventory find community and the last one is to help others yeah if you kind of go through anything like i've been through or not like i've been through you know every individual has their own challenges but if you overcome something in your life help other people to do it, share that experience, give back, see if you can help someone else transform their lives. You know, and this is what you do, Johnny. Mm. 
done that you've looked at your life we had a discussion the other day you was in a job going one way you changed it and now you're getting a lot of air time you're putting yourself out there and all you're doing is you're giving tidbits experience feedback of how people can change their lives you know and there's, there's scientifically there's scientific research that shows when you help people your dopamine levels raise mm. yeah and for the addicts what we're chasing is that dopamine that's why yeah. heroin is called dope we're trying to get them dopamine levels up and we're just chasing that chasing it chasing it chasing it and the funny thing is i can find that all i've got to do is help other people yeah so take inventory find community and help others yeah and when and that's a really good point i love the point on helping others and when you're when you're sort of not helping others you can kind of get caught in your own head an awful lot whilst it kind of gets more into your heart i feel and kind of feels like you're not so so self-centered and therefore chasing things all the time so definitely a great great point as were the other two so appreciate those um terry that's been really helpful as per your whole um uh interview today so really appreciate that um you've obviously you know got loads and loads to share and you obviously educated yourself on the topic and as well as forensics, which I must say is very, very impressive, um, uh, and including a master's and now doing a PhD, obviously in addition on, can on bladder cancer. But um, if people want to get in contact with you or find out more about you or anything you might find useful to share, um, what, would you, what would you suggest? Yeah, I've wrote down a few resources here. Um, the first thing people need to do if they've got a problem with uh, drugs in any way, and that includes alcohol, it includes prescription pills, cannabis, is seek help, right? There's a vast, you've got, you've got the internet, there's loads of stuff on there which can help you. You've got your basic stuff like, pardon me, like Frank, which is there for drug use, and you've got something called smart meetings. But the place I usually direct people to is uh, a 12-step program you know you've got narcotics anonymous cocaine anonymous uh, alcoholics anonymous if you go online each, each one of those fellowships should have uh, a national helpline you can phone that national helpline and someone will get you to a meeting or they'll give you someone to speak to so you can share your experience and what you'll be doing is you'll be sharing your experience with someone that has been through it so not professionals in any way. It will be another cocaine addict or it will be another drug addict or it will be another alcoholic that you can talk to, you know. Mm. But if 12-step uh, fellowships are not few, if you've tried them before, you know, there's Frank, there's smart meetings, the, you know, there's NHS do stuff on uh, uh, drug addiction and places you can get help. You know, there's a, there's a multitude of uh, wealth and knowledge out there that you can use and find that, you know that you can source to help you in some way brilliant okay now that's really useful and what we'll do is also we'll um i'll put this in the description so for you listeners or watchers this will be on youtube and podcast i'll put this in the description as well so people can have a look at a couple of these links as well um and then yeah and if anyone wants to get in contact with me because you know, you can sit here and listen to podcasts like I do and think, you know, I'll never get in touch with them people. But if you really are suffering in some way with addiction and you can get in touch with me and I can help in any way I will, right? So you can get in touch with me through 11thElementRecovery at gmail.com. That's all lowercase letters. 11thElementRecovery at gmail.com. You know, there's a Facebook page I've set up called The Culture of Change. Uh, it's a young young page I've set up. I've just put putting stuff up there. I'm hoping it kind of, kind of expand and be a resource for people to use. And also, I'm there on Facebook uh, under Terry Divine. But if they go to your site, your Facebook page, become a member of that, they can find me in there. Yeah. Yeah, and then I just, I just wanted to throw this in, if it's all right, Johnny. Yeah, of course. Because um, I, I mentioned to you before about fundraiser mm. I'm doing, didn't I? Yeah. Through the process of getting clean within this last eight years, uh, three years ago, we had another child, me and my fiancé. It was a little boy called Jacob. 
and he was like a, quite a strong burly boy and uh, there was complications with the labour and the buff and he was breached at buff and he was starved of oxygen for over 20 minutes. He had something called hyperoxemic encephalopathy, which means his, his brain was starved of oxygen and he was really poorly, the most poorest baby on the ward. And uh, unfortunately, at five days old, I had to hold him in my arms and uh, my missus held on to me and uh, we, had, we let him have a go at breathing by himself. And uh, I don't even think he took a breath and he died right there in my arms. And this is three years ago. At that point, if I had that previous mindset that we spoke about, I could have given in, I could have used that as the ultimate excuse. I think people would have, would have even let me have that, you know? You don't get much worse than this. But what we've done, we've managed to turn it around and we managed to keep his name alive. And uh, each year we do a fundraiser for him and we hold a remembrance service every January for people that have lost children. But obviously this year, that's not been possible. So uh, we set up a big fundraiser next year. So myself and two friends, we're going to climb Mount Kilimanjaro next year, September 2021. So it's a massive feat. It's a massive ordeal. It's, uh, it's going to be a great adventure. And we're raising money for Cots for Tots and Brist and Sands. Uh, the two charities which uh, pivot all in the... Uh, upkeep of my the upkeep of my my son Jacob when he was in the NICU unit at St Michael's Hospital in Bristol so that you can find that under the hashtag honoring Jacob yeah or if you find your way to my Facebook page through maybe your site or just on Facebook um, yeah you can go there there's a link there you know if you can't donate then please share the page let's get the page out there let's raise as much money as we can and let's help those families that have uh, lost children or their children are poorly and in intensive care units and see what we can do to kind of support these people you know and, and, and ease their pain yeah absolutely well thank you thank you for sharing that as well um terry um so we'll, we'll certainly be referencing that in the the description as well so anyone listening who wants to contribute to that please um obviously have a look at that um it'll be in the description but thank you terry for that um, was was there anything else uh, to add, Terry, from those that you wanted to mention? That I can think of. Okay, brilliant. So, well, I really appreciate you coming on and then sharing so much, Terry. Every all those um, you know very personal things in order to help people potentially who might be struggling with any of the issues you've mentioned or something similar. Um, so I really appreciate your time and thank you very much for being with me on this podcast and video tonight. Cheers. Thanks for having us on, Johnny. It's always great to uh, see you and hear you. You're only down the road and hopefully yeah. we can meet up after all this is uh, after we're out of lockdown, hopefully. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, um, thanks, Terry. And thank you for everyone listening today. Catch you soon.